Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Brett. How are you today? Hey, Jeff. <laughs> I'm fine. And you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. Always happy to be recording a podcast with you. Well, yeah, as you should be. Only because that's the only way I do it is with you. Podcast. That is. <laughs> All <laughs> right. A, settle down. Settle down now. <laughs> All right. We oh, have a boy. special guest today. Wow. Steve Dinell. Steve is a receiver and he's the president of Jalmar Properties Inc., Danell Expert Services Inc., and Fed Receiver Inc., all based in Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Steve has served as a receiver in over 700 cases. He has decades of experience in receivership matters involving literally all types of businesses in all types of industries involving real estate, personal property assets, operating businesses, liquidations, complex partnership disputes, and appointments as receiver in actions filed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and other government enforcement actions. Steve has also served as a provisional director, a dissolution manager, a probate administrator, and a partition referee. He is a past co-president of the Los Angeles Orange County chapter of the California Receivers Forum. He is a current board member and past president of the National Association of Federal Equity Receivers. And we're happy to have him. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I didn't read actually, but your name has Steve Donnell, CPM, ARM, and CCIM. What are those uh, designations that I left out? Well, a large part of what I do involves property management. So the Institute of Real Estate Management offers a number of professional designations. CPM is a certified property manager. ARM is an accredited residential manager. And I am a California real estate broker. And as a broker, I have a professional designation through the CCIM Institute, And that's a designation involving mathematics, involving real estate, compounding, discounting, and uh, a lot of that type of boring, esoteric Excel spreadsheet work. (laughs) So for those who are less familiar, why is, you know, your background with property management or your, your expertise in property management, why does that fit hand in hand with receivership? The background in property management and real estate management and ownership is what got us into receiverships. And so the majority of the cases that I handle involve some type of real estate. And the background as a certified property manager, as well as a property management standard of care expert witness, lends itself very well to me being qualified to being appointed by a judge over either a piece of real estate or a business that may actually own or have interests in real estate. Okay, that makes sense. And so, and for the benefit of maybe some of our listeners who are less familiar with the receiverships, it's fair to say that you typically are appointed when there is some dispute and the dispute involves uh, a piece of property and you're there to charge with preserving that piece of property while the fight happens. Yeah, that's generally right. There has to be a dispute because there has to be a lawsuit. So a receiver is appointed by a judge, either in state or federal court, and there has to be an existing lawsuit filed. So a receivership is not a 
a cause of action. You don't sue for appointment of receiver, but it's in connection with some other type of dispute. That could be a dispute with a lender. It could be a dispute with an investor. And in connection with that dispute, then a court-appointed receiver can be uh, appointed to take possession of the property, to protect it, to preserve it, maybe to fix it, rehabilitate it, and then ultimately uh, potentially to sell it as well. So we've seen, uh, it's nice to meet you, Steve. We've seen stories, or there's been a lot of stories out there all over the country, but really some California-specific about you know, owners of buildings just basically handing them back over to let or handing them over to lenders. Uh, have you seen some of that and what's going on out there? You know, I think the craziness is starting. Uh, just yesterday, downtown San Francisco, a major retail mall, Westfield, announced that they're giving up on uh, uh, Union Square uh, for that actual mall, which is not long after Nordstrom announced that they were throwing in the towel uh, in that mall. In addition, you know, basically one of the premier buildings in downtown Los Angeles, uh, Library Tower, Gas Tower, kind of the one of the iconic uh, towers Similarly, Brookfield is throwing in the towel and handing back the keys, and that property is in receivership. In addition, national news that Hilton is uh, giving back two major hotels in San Francisco. So I am starting to get some calls I haven't seen in 10, 12 years. And I think especially in the office market, there are a lot of problems, high vacancies. And some of this is related to the macro and microeconomic conditions that exist in the country in certain regions. And then you have other issues that are purely related to social or political issues, to be honest, especially in San Francisco. And so there's a seismic change going on in downtown San Francisco. Currently, the vacancy rates for office in San Francisco are in the mid-30s. In pre-pandemic, they were sub-5% vacancy. There are storm clouds on the horizon. And for somebody like me that's a state or federal court-appointed receiver, partition referee, which is a state code, a creature of state code to sell real estate. It's actually good news for me, an opportunity for me to provide value and hopefully solve problems. So 2008 obviously was a completely different issue than you know the start of that 2008, 9, 10 was a different issue than you have today. How do we get out of this, right? I mean, you have all of these buildings, you have this shift in some people working from home, downsizing. Like you said, there's some social political issues, you know, with certain cities and certain areas, where do we go? Where do we start? <laughs> Especially like in the office market, you know, as a receiver coming in, you have this building that is 30% or more vacant. You've got all of these storm clouds. You've got interest rates that are high. You've got all this stuff. What's the plan? Like, what? how do you exit? How do you deal with that? Well, it's a great question. Again, I think it is very different than the 2008, 9, and 10 scenario with the rapid rise of interest rates, the access to capital, we have a lot of regional banks, obviously, that's been in the news where some of these uh, regional banks are under some severe pressure. And so the, you know, the feds, the regulatory agencies are looking at the health of banks in a very, very unique way, coupled with the social unrest in certain cities related to homelessness and drugs and the policies of some cities. And I don't want to get into politics here, but some cities obviously have different perspectives and approaches to dealing with some of these social issues. And then you have a rapid rise of uh, mortgage interest rates, which is unprecedented. And coupled with what has happened with the pandemic, a lot of people working from home and a lot of people having an expectation of, at a minimum, working from home part-time, although there is a movement underway 
you know, to get people back to offices. And I think that there's a significant amount of resistance in many respects to that. So all of which is to say, I think there's a perfect storm underway in certain submarkets or certain property types, and primarily that's related to the office market, have really not seen in major metropolitan areas problems with industrial. I think retail has come back you know, relatively well, although there are some problems there. And so I think that there's going to be a change underway in terms of institutional ownership of some of these office towers. And I think that the lenders are going to be feeling some pain and it's, you know, with this pain comes opportunities as well. But some of these properties are going to be trading at below replacement cost. It's just going to be interesting to see the further guidance that is given with respect to mortgage rates. You know, we just had some, some new numbers recently that came out with respect to job creation, uh, which was very positive. You know, so you're, we're, we're, we're getting some mixed message messages. The, uh, the inflation rate, uh, the core rate still, I believe, uh, north of 5%, but the inflation is tempered a bit. So I think the rise in mortgage rates and interest rates maybe have, have tempered things. But I don't have the answers. All I can tell you is there are certain storm clouds headed our way, and a receivership is, is one way to solve a problem where you've got an owner that is literally looking at throwing away the keys they're not wanting to maintain their property. They don't have the money to maintain the property, but the collateral for the loan, which is the real estate, is in jeopardy. And a receivership is a tool that a lender or a creditor has to bring a third party in to protect that loan collateral. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're not going to come in and change the economic climate, mm-hmm. obviously, but you're gonna, you're there to, you know, mitigate the loss, so to ease the pain, if you will, right, on a particular property. You know, at the end of the day, it's not going to ease the pain of the owner. It's not going to ease the pain of the guarantor on the loan that may be subject to exposure to a call on the guarantee. But it will certainly tend to ease the pain of a, of a lender that is looking at a non-performing loan and a property that is performing in a substandard way. So I literally come in and I step into the shoes of the landlord. I manage the property. I collect the rents. I perform repairs. Sometimes the lender is going to want to foreclose on the property and that property then becomes a bank owned asset and that's known as an REO. And there haven't been a lot of those in the last decade. No, uh, there are. Yeah. I mean, the good old days of, you know, REOs and special assets departments of banks, those days are beginning to return. Or sometimes a lender says, I don't want to touch the property and be on the chain of title. And they'll want the receiver to sell the property. So every case is unique and different. Yeah, I mean, certainly, as you said, opportunities are out there for people to, you know, to come in and take advantage. And to me, I think there's going to be a change. Some cities, are their landscape are, uh, is going to change, right? You know, maybe some, some office buildings become residential. You know, they'll convert. It's pretty amazing to hear a, a massive company like Westfield saying, we're giving up on on an entire property, like a mall. We're just We're just done. We're giving it up. I mean, that's... Before now, I think that's that's like unheard of. It is pretty unprecedented. I think the loan on that property is north of $500 million. And one of the interesting things is some of the real estate trade organizations, such as the Institute of Real Estate Management, which is a national trade organization, I'm seeing seminars on the conversion of office building to residential. Yeah. And so I think that that is something that is is occurring and, and has been occurring in certain submarkets because of the ongoing housing crisis in many 
metropolitan uh, locations. But the crisis in the office market is certainly accelerating that. And so it is unlike anything that some of the younger real estate professionals have seen because they have not been through a down market. Me not being a young guy anymore, I've been through, this will be kind of my third down market and down cycle. And so it'll be interesting to see how deep it runs and how long it lasts. Yeah. If we shift the gears a little bit from real estate, you know, the operating businesses, sometimes you're appointed, there's an operating business. I'm Sure, this happens more frequently with the with the government um, enforcement actions. Can you tell us what that process looks like when you get appointed as receiver for an operating business? I, you know, I know in most instances the business those that are operating it are surprised by it or they're not aware that you're coming. So, what happens when you come knocking on the door? So I am universally disliked by a whole subset of people out there. And uh, those are people that are doing bad things. And I have been appointed in U.S. Federal District Court as what's known as a federal equity receiver. Those are cases involving typically government agencies such as the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. I have also been appointed in connection with state court actions. I have a current case with the California Department of Justice where I was appointed to take over assets for somebody that committed a crime and is incarcerated. The federal equity cases on the Securities and Exchange Commission side involve investment fraud. Those are the typical Ponzi schemes, Bernie Madoff type scams, and I've handled many, many of those. And then on the consumer fraud perspective, those involve Federal Trade Commission where consumers are defrauded when they purchase either a product or a service. Generally, the owners of the company know that they're being investigated, but they do not know when I'm going to come knocking on the door. And when I knock on the door, I am flanked on the left side, typically by IRS agents and FBI agents and Department of Justice agents on the one side and security guards and, and lawyers on the other. So we really go in on a hard takeover. There can be a group of you know between five and 20 of us. And uh, you begin the process of that hard takeover to try to recover assets for those that have been defrauded. And that's literally locking the prior owners out, interviewing witnesses, seizing control of bank accounts, the whole ball of wax, right? That's right. Generally, I'm going to have a locksmith with me. Sometimes we contact the landlord in advance. We let them know that we're coming in advance. At the same time that I'm physically there, we generally are going to have a listing of most of the bank accounts of the company because of prior investigations that the government has conducted. And those bank accounts or those uh, banks are going to be receiving orders, freezing assets. And then you go in, I walk in and, you know, I try to treat people with respect and dignity just because you're an employee of a company that is engaged in wrongdoing doesn't automatically mean that the employees themselves are engaged in wrongdoing. And we begin our investigation. Everybody is served with the order appointing receiver. They're interviewed. Criminal agents, you know, very likely are in attendance and I invite them in. And I literally take possession of the business and begin that investigation. And that journey begins, which in many cases lasts for years. So when you're appointed, Steve, as equity receiver, even over properties, the order appointing you dictates what your you know duties are, your responsibilities are, and your authority is. And so how often do you have the opportunity 
to review that order prior to it being presented to and entered by the court? I would say 90% of the time mm-hmm. I am able to review the proposed order. And the, that order is my marching orders. That's the Bible. That order appointing receiver gives me the scope of work and my authority. I can also go in and seek to have the, uh, the authority modified. So the court order itself can be modified. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's common in a federal equity receivership when a business is taken over by a receiver is in these cases, you have the plaintiff, which is the government agency, and you have the defendants, which are the property owners. There may be what's known as relief defendants. And when I go in to take over a company, I might find that maybe family members of the business owners or other third-party recipients of funds, I may need to pursue them. And they may actually be named as additional defendants. So it's not only the order appointing receiver, but it may be the parties of the litigation itself may change. So very fact specific, every case is a little bit different, but it's, it's exciting work, it's challenging work, and it's very important and very serious work. Have you encountered any uh, serious resistance or altercations uh, in, you know, in these 700, in those seven, those 700 yeah, cases? Yeah. I imagine there's one. There's gotta there, be but. some that are, there are some good stories. We have, yeah. I did have one gentleman a number of years ago when I was taking over a a property. This property had been taken over by a local gang about 30 miles north of Los Angeles. And he he pointed a gun at me and uh, told me to leave and and threatened me. And so I I did. I left, promptly called uh, the police. And the police asked who I was and my involvement. I told them that I was a court-appointed receiver. And they were thrilled because the owner had essentially abandoned the property and this was a known drug and gang property. Whoa. And uh, two days later, helicopters, drug sniffing dogs, and a group of about 30 law enforcement at my invitation did a hard takeover and we, we, we cleaned out that property. And so that was very, very effective. I, I've also had uh, threats. Some people obviously are not happy when I cut off their source of money. There was one individual that was leaving threatening voicemails. Uh, we contacted the FBI, provided copies of the voicemails. That individual was actually indicted for criminal terrorist threats against a court-appointed officer or agent of the court. Uh, very, very serious if you threaten, well, serious if you threaten anybody, but I suppose even more serious if you're threatening an arm of the court and a receiver is an arm of the court. But, you know, ordinarily, more often than not in these white-collar cases involving federal equity receiverships, The defendants are lawyered up. They're represented by lawyers. Generally, people are going to comport themselves with, you know, a certain level of decorum. But but again, you know, emotions can get the better of people. And uh, we've had some situations. Let me just say this. My, my lobby in my office suite here is fully locked down. There's a, there's a lock to get into the interior of our office. There's glass separation. So we've, we've undertaken some security measures based on, doing this for close to three decades. Sounds like Jeff's office. Yeah, we have heavy security down there. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's needed. I mean, you never know when you're the messenger effectively, right? I mean, you're the person that's coming in and they see you as the person that's removing them. But in reality, A, obviously we all know they did it to themselves, but the court did it. And whoever is on the other side of the litigation or pursuit of the asset or whatever it is, is the one that 
got you appointed and you're just sort of in the middle, if you will, and doing the job that you've been appointed to do. But it's very hard, as you say, when emotions, you know, get the best of people. That's exactly right. And a lot of times the defendants confuse me with either the, you know, the prosecutor, if it's a criminal case or the government, and I am not the one that has initiated the action. I am the person that has been appointed by the judge to try to identify the problem and to implement a solution or to implement a resolution under the law to try to either protect an asset or recover assets for the benefit of defrauded individuals. But it's difficult for the business owners to separate what I do as an agent from the court from what the government or a lender or a creditor might do. So yeah, I'm dragged through the mud. I have a target on my back, figuratively, hopefully. But again, you know, thankfully, knock on wood, the vast majority of the time, the individuals, especially those that are represented by competent counsel, do understand that they need to cooperate. That being said, look, I have had to file contempt of court actions. In fact, I've got one going right now. There have been a handful of cases where the defendants have not cooperated and they have been put in jail through a contempt action. And that's a power that a receiver has to seek to compel compliance through initiating a contempt of court process. Yeah, I think I would imagine that. I know that we've encountered this in some of our cases as well, is that just like some of the targets are going to confuse you from, you know, the government or the prosecutors. Some of them confuse, you know, their personal property from the business property. And they think, oh, this is my laptop. It's not the company's laptop. It's my laptop. And then they're going to resist turning things over. And that's where, uh, you know, problems start. Oh, yeah. You can imagine that we don't allow any of the employees to leave unless they're searched, especially with small key fobs now. We go through individuals' briefcases, their purses. They are not allowed to remove any electronics. And we hear that all the time, that uh, the laptop is my personal laptop. And that may be true, but until such time as it can be proven otherwise, typically through a third-party forensic analysis of the computer, if that computer contains any business records on it, that is the possession and the property of the receivership estate. Once you put company data on something, that is an asset of the estate. But if it's truly personal, personal photographs, mementos, items that have nothing to do with the business, then sure, they're, they're, they're free to, to remove those items from the business. Yeah. Yeah. For litigators or, or people who, um, you know, are less familiar with receiver, when, when should they be considering a appointment of a receiver in, in litigation? A receivership is really known as a pretty extreme remedy. So it, it is a remedy available in connection with existing litigation. And there have to generally be some facts and circumstances present in order to justify the appointment of a receiver. And those facts and circumstances are going to include things like diminution of value, waste, fraud, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty. So either investors or partners are being harmed or creditors are being harmed. Or in some cases, there's a public interest issue at stake. I've been appointed by city attorneys in connection with substandard housing, for example. So you might have a slumlord situation and that might be Mm. where people are physically getting harmed or the public could get harmed. But it, it really has to be a pretty extreme set of circumstances 
And sometimes there's a violation of a contract or a violation, uh, allegation of a violation of a law. And a court would then take a look at the allegations and the facts and circumstances to see if the remedy of a receivership is appropriate. And more often than not, obviously, we're talking about money. We're talking about money in terms of loan proceeds, maybe that are going out the back door. I just got a case here in Los Angeles about 30 days ago where a borrower was purportedly operating a hospice company and they took out a $2.5 million loan. Well, actually, the hospice business didn't ever even exist. Hmm. And we just got our discovery responses back and our uh, results of our subpoenas. And actually, it looks like the business owner and borrower bought a home, bought two expensive vehicles, Mm. and transferred a lot of money to other third parties. And so in this instance, it appears it was a complete fraud. And now we're going to be going after the third-party recipients of those funds. The individual's child went to a very, very prestigious, expensive school, We're going to be knocking on the door of the school asking for those funds to be returned because there was not equivalent value provided because the funds were essentially stolen. And that's part of the allegation of the fraud. So uh, I get involved in covering hard assets, vehicles, equipment. I've recovered boats, jewelry, cars. I had one case where I locked down an aircraft that I ultimately sold. And then in other cases, it's actually recovering money for the benefit of these creditors who have been defrauded. But, you know, in addition to the fraud, there are also circumstances where you've got good people, good operators that are subject to the whims of the market. And through no fault of their own, their business or their building is failing. I was appointed as a receiver in the beginning of the pandemic over a distribution company that sold and distributed women's clothing. And here in California, like many states and cities in Los Angeles, the stores were shut for a long period of time. And this company had no outlet to sell its product. And so there were 6 million women's clothing items, and I was appointed as the receiver. And ultimately, I was able to sell all of those products. And that company was caught in the storm of COVID. So it's not necessarily people doing bad things. It just, they may be the victim of circumstances. Right. Well, we're glad you're there as a resource to help recover the losses and protect the assets and then also bring back maybe what's been lost in in certain circumstances. So kudos to you for, for doing good work. Agreed. Steve, this is great. Thanks. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share it, and leave a review. Brett's giving me a weird look. What is this look? (laughs) He's trying to intimidate me. It won't work. Share it, leave a review, subscribe to the show, and leave a review helps others find the show, helps us grow, helps us devote more time and resources, helps us produce better content, have great guests like Steve Donnellan. So really great. Thanks, Steve. Really enjoyed the time. Nelson, Brett. Thank you. No, thank you. Even though you made me fumble. <laughs> no, you didn't make Steve, me. thanks so much for doing it. We appreciate it. Nice meeting thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Nelson. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.